Good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. 2022 went by just like that, right? 2023, can you believe it? It's crazy. I mean, um, seemed like uh, 2000, the whole Y2K thing was just like just yesterday, right? Remember that? 2023, this is wild. Hey, it's good to see you this morning. Um, we're going to be in the book of Revelation today. You know, my wife, uh, she's been kidding around with me the last few days. She said, you know, you should get up there Sunday morning and uh, say, hey, you know, uh, today we're going to talk about how you could be a better you. And um, some of you are like, well, what's the deal with that? Well, if, if you did that, then you wouldn't preach the Bible, right? It's all about, you know, anyways. Okay, that, did, that totally flopped. Okay, so I knew I shouldn't have said that. I just, I knew it. Anyways, five points for you to be a better you. Okay, let's talk about you. Let's talk about you today. No, um, I should make fun. Let's talk about Jesus. Okay, there we go. Revelation chapter two. If you have a Bible, turn there. Um, we're gonna look at the first seven verses of the book of Revelation, uh, chapter two. Um, I really want us to get our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's start the, the new year off right. Um, as, as way of intro, the apostle Paul penned these ancient words in the book of Revelation. And we know that John was one of the original disciples, uh, one of the 12. He was an eyewitness to the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. We know that he was a leader of the early church. Really, he was a, a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He was a pastor at Ephesus. He wrote five books of the Bible. History tells us that they tried to boil him alive, but he wouldn't die. They eventually exiled him to a small island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So there's your intro. Revelation chapter 2. Verses 1 to 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In chapter one of the book of Revelation, there's this grand vision of the resurrected Jesus. John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and, and Jesus tells John to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. These are uh, letters written and sent directly from Jesus to these churches in Asia Minor. These were real, historical, ancient churches 
located in the region of Asia Minor during the first century. Two of the seven churches only get commendations from Jesus. They get no criticism. Those two churches were Smyrna and Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia is the word for brotherly love. One church gets only criticisms and no condemnations. And we know that is the church of Laodicea, completely lukewarm. Then there's four churches that get mixed reviews, some things Jesus approves and disapproves of. So today's going to be a little different. No PowerPoint, no message notes. I want you to listen or jot notes in your Bible on a piece of paper if you want to. Here's kind of the first point. I want to laser in on this thought. Serve Jesus because of his greatness. I want to go back to Revelation chapter 1. Here's this vision that John has of Jesus, verses 12 to 16. So if you have a Bible, turn there. Revelation 1, 12 to 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. That's really important. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So John has this incredible vision of the resurrected Christ. And, and, and this vision, he sees seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches in Asia Minor. The text says, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So the question is, where is Jesus? In the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is in the midst of the churches. Jesus is serving the churches. It speaks of the seven stars in his right hand. You know, we know that the Bible tells us where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. God chooses to manifest his presence to his people in very powerful ways. John has this resurrected vision of the resurrected Christ and, and, and he sees these lampstands and, and, and he sees Christ in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus, the church, is all about Jesus. Jesus loved the church so much that he gave his life for the church. I mean, I just want you to think about what Jesus did for us. I mean, he died for the church. He died for you. There's no greater cause. There's no greater kingdom. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of isms out there. You know, relativism and pluralism and, and uh, paganism and, you know, all these isms, right? But we know, we know that, that ultimately there's one ultimate truth. There's been a lot of kingdoms, but this kingdom is forever. It is eternal. There's, it will never end. It says, it speaks of, John says, one like the son of man. This was Jesus's favorite title of himself while he was here on earth. It's more than a title that speaks about his humanity. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel the prophet has this vision and, and he has the, the, this vision of one like the son of man and he comes to the ancient of days which is God the father. And God gave the son, the son, the son of man, a dominion which is power, rule, authority, he gives them glory. He gives them a kingdom. It says that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. Over the Christmas break, got to spend time with family and my younger brother and his wife and their family, they're missionaries with Ethnos 360 and many of you know them. Many of you probably support them. Um, every year our VBS missions offering goes directly to support them in Maliali. They're up on a very high mountain in Papua New Guinea, uh, reaching an unengaged, unreached uh, people group. People that um, many of them have never seen a white person. They've never heard the name of Jesus. They don't have a written language. And so my brother and his wife and their family, they, they went there, they built a home, they assimilated into the culture, and um, they were able to give the, the, the people a written language. And over the last, I would say probably the last maybe six months or so, they've been sharing God's talk with them. So they've been walking them through um, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and literally Several weeks ago, they finally were able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And so many people in the Maliali tribe repented of their sins, they believed in Jesus, and now they're followers of Christ. Amen? How exciting is that, right? That's super awesome. I mean, you know, we've been supporting them, giving financially to them. And so many of them are new believers. My brother David said to me the other day, his very close friend Eric gave his life to Christ. And um, Daniel tells us, Daniel tells us that, that the Father gave the Son dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, should worship him. I mean, the end game, the end game for all of us is to be at the throne of God. That's the end game. That's the goal. I mean, that should be the passion, the driving force of our lives, that when we take our very last breath here, we will stand in the presence of God. The Bible is so clear there, that there are two eternal destinies. You hear a lot about heaven and forgiveness of your sins and grace and the love of God and you should that's the good news but prior to the good news there was bad news there was a garden there was a fall there was there was rebellion there was anger Adam and Eve wanted to do it their way sin came into the world there's been a massive divide between sinful humanity and a holy righteous God the Bible is so clear that if you die in your sins, if you die without Christ, you go into a Christless eternity. You'll spend eternity away from God. 
But God tells us that you can receive the gift of eternal life. And in and, and, and the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, chapter 5, John has this vision of heaven and, and all nations and tribes and people groups and languages are around the throne of God and they're worshiping God. Dominion is everlasting. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom will never be destroyed. John has this very high view of Jesus. He saw Jesus clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, which may symbolize Jesus is our great high priest. We know that he is. We know that we only have access to God through Jesus. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. We only have access to the Father because of the Son, because of his accomplishments, because of his achievements on the cross. We can't come to, to, to the throne of God's grace without Jesus. We need his blood, we need his sacrifice. He made it possible for us to be reconciled to a holy God. It says that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Maybe this is speaking of wisdom and dignity. Some of you got some white hair going on. Wisdom, dignity, right? That's an that's a awesome thing. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Speaking of his purity, his holiness, clarity. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Many waters, I think of, of, of waters, they're, they're, they're booming, they're, they're powerful. From his mouth came a, two, came a sharp two-edged sword symbolizing divine judgment. See, a lot of people in our culture you know, they want to strip Jesus of certain attributes, characteristics. They just want to see him in, in a very, they want to see Jesus like them. They don't want to see Jesus for really who he is. And so, oh, Jesus, he's just, he's just meek and mild. He, he's just, he's a pushover. He's, a, you know, he's just, he's milk toast. No, listen, he, his mouth, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, See, we see Jesus as our Savior, and rightfully we should, but the Bible says that he's going to be our judge. Someday we're going to stand before Jesus. He's going to be our judge. And all of our works, everything we've done, everything we've said, they will be laid bare before him. Our life will be an open book. The books will be opened. If you're a believer, it's one of rewards. If you're not a believer, it's one of condemnation. You know, Jesus is all-powerful. He's, he's conquered sin. He's conquered uh, uh, our ultimate enemy, which is death. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. I mean, I want you to think about this for a moment. If you look at the sun's rays long enough, the sun can blind you. If you look at it long enough, it can burn your retina. It speaks of the, the, the blazing purity holiness of, of God's glory and his, and, and his greatness. God uh, tells us in the Old Testament, no man can look upon me and live. We were built by God to behold his face. But because of the fall, we were unable to do that. And so being forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, someday we will stand in God's presence and we will behold his face, the infinite one, 
the eternal one, the uncaused caused, the one who has always been, who will always be, the Alpha, the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the beginning and the end, the only rock, the only Savior, the only God. Amen? We're going to behold his face. We were, we were made by him, for him. We were created to find ultimate significance, joy, and purpose in a relationship with his son. Psalm 16 says, in his presence is fullness of joy. In Revelation 1, verse 17, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John is probably, historians tell us most likely he's probably maybe 90 to 100 years of age. He's an old man, and he has this vision of Jesus, and he falls at his feet. He sees the greatness of Jesus, and it caused him to feel like he was dying. This was an act of of worship and surrender, adoration and humility. John's response should be our response. When we're confronted, when we encounter the, the living, resurrected Christ, we should bow in humility. We should be in awe of who Christ is. Jesus is altogether lovely. He's altogether wonderful and magnificent. Jesus has something important to say to all seven churches. Here's what's happening in each congregation. There's right, there's wrong. There's strengths, there's failures. And he calls them to a response. Why? Because Jesus died for the church. Jesus loves the church. If Jesus died for the church and he loves the church, as believers, we should love the church. We should serve the church. We should give our lives for the church. I mean, Christ redeemed us. Christ redeemed us not to be selfish, not to live for ourselves, but Christ redeemed us so that we could live for him. It says that he's the head of the church. He's the chief leader. He's the senior pastor of all churches. He calls the shots. We should love what Jesus loves. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? And I'm not talking about do you love the concept of the church. I'm not talking about that. There's a lot of concepts that we, we can really get into. I'm talking about the, where the rubber meets the road, the nitty gritty of life. Do you love the church? Do you love God's people? Do you love the church enough to serve the church? Here's the, here's the deal. Each and every one of you, you have a gift at least one spiritual gift, possibly many. God has given you these gifts not for your personal enjoyment, but for employment. He wants you to use those gifts for his glory, for the edification, for the building up of the body, for the, for the church, so that the church is strong. Are you serving the church? Are you rubbing shoulders with people in the church? Do you know people in the church? Do you love the church enough? Do you love the mission enough to share that mission, to share that message with lost people? God's given you an oikos, eight to 15 people. He's dropped these people in your world and all you gotta do is identify who they are. Is it a neighbor? Is it a coworker? Is it it a, you know, the, the person down the hall in your dorm room? Is it, is it the person you work with? Is it a family member? Who is it? 
God says, listen, I've, I've placed these people at this point, at this time in your life for a reason so that you can share with them my great love for them. We should love what Jesus loves. Jesus loves the church. He gave his life for the church. Revelation chapter two, verses two and three. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, speaking of the church at Ephesus, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In verse six, it says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus begins his letter to the church at Ephesus with praise, with approval, with encouragement before he moves to criticisms. So number one, he says, I see your faithful service. Jesus says, I know your works and your toil. That's a good word for us today. God sees the landscape of your life. He sees your faithful service. He sees your work for him. He sees your heart for him, that you're committed, that you're serving, that you're growing, that you're faithful in witness. He sees the hours, maybe the behind the scenes work that you're doing for the church, that you're doing ultimately for him. Number two, he says, I see your commitment to biblical truth. I mean, they, they've tested those who claim to be apostles, which is the word for messengers, um, and they were not. So there were some people saying, I'm an apostle, but they were not. So in terms of doctrine and theology, they were very sound, theologically sound, conservative. They were like the Bereans in the book of Acts. They searched the scriptures. I mean, the church at Ephesus, man, they were theologically astute. They knew what the Bible taught. Number three, Jesus says, I see your suffering. They were enduring patiently. They were bearing up for my name's sake. They're, they're not growing weary is what Jesus said. Now you have to understand the city of Ephesus, difficult place to live as a Christian. Here's why. The city was marked with sexual morality. Prostitution was legalized. There was so much idolatry. 50 gods and goddesses worshiped in this city. The temple of Artemis, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. It rivaled the temple of Parthenion in Athens, Greece. It was three to four times the size. It was as big as a soccer field. The emperor of Rome demanded worship from all its citizens. If you didn't worship the emperor, you were socially marginalized. You would possibly lose your job. Your status in society dropped by quite a bit. You were seen as a rebel against the state. Many people lost their lives. So we think sometimes as believers, oh, it's so hard. It's so hard to live as a Christian in, in, in our culture today. Listen, <laughs> it's pretty easy compared to what some of these early believers had to go through. I mean, prostitution being legalized, idolatry run amok. If you didn't worship the emperor, you would, you would be killed, maybe lose your job, like I said, socially marginalized. In a lot of ways, we have it so easy. We complain about the world. We, we complain about culture shifting. Instead of complaining, why don't we start praying for people? 
Why don't we start asking God to give us boldness and wisdom and, 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 and to give us a speech that is winsome and, and that we can go out and, and influence people with the gospel. Instead of complaining about, you know, the, the culture is so dark and, and we get very negative, why don't, why don't we just fully believe that God is sovereign? That God has placed us here at this moment in history. This is our time to share the gospel with lost people and that God is working and he's moving in the hearts of people. Another thing that he mentioned, he said, I, I, I see your sexual purity. You know, in verse six, it says, you, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Hate is a very strong word here. It, it, you have to understand the context. The Nicolaitans were followers of a, of a fringed heretic by the name of Nicholas. And what Nicholas taught and what he believed was um, it was about synchronizing Christianity with fertility cults. So it was like a mixture of Christianity with the mixing in a little bit of demonism, paganism, sexual immorality. So the believers there at Ephesus opposed these heretics. They opposed these false teachers, these false leaders who were leading people astray. Sounds like a great church. I mean, doctrinally they're sound, theologically they're, they're, they're right on. They're, they're opposing false teachers, they're suffering, they're doing all, so many great things. Here's the next point, serve Jesus because he's your first love. In verse four, it moves to the criticism. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So the church at Ephesus, they were rock solid. They were conservative, doctrinally sound, opposing heretics, false leaders, they're teaching, they were suffering hardship under dire circumstances. And Jesus has a word with this church. He says, here's what he says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have left your first love. Your first true love. Here's the point that Jesus is making. You can be godly. You can love what's right. You can oppose what's wrong and yet be millions of miles away from God. We think if I handle the word, if I'm doctrinally sound, if I'm opposing what's false, man, that's what God wants for me. Those things are good. Those are things that Jesus is, 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 um, he is he's commending them about. But then he says, this I have against you, that you have abandoned your first love. This is heart-wrenching, mind-blowing, staggering for all of us because we, we, we think, you think you're close to God, but you're actually not. You know, you may have it all externally figured out, but internally your heart has grown cold and indifferent. Like many marriages today, on the outside, the marriage looks great. But it's, it's a facade. Inside, inside that home, there's turmoil. There's deep hurt and wounds and separation. Have you ever met someone who was utterly and desperately in love with Jesus? I have. I think we have all met people like that. Their love for Jesus shapes their values. Their love for Jesus shows up in how they love their spouse, how they raise their children, 
how they handle their money, how they serve other people, how they are at the workplace. Your love for Jesus shapes your values. You know, when I was 15 years old, I was at a skating rink, and I was, it was like a youth group skate night, and I see this beautiful girl skating, and I didn't know who she was, didn't know her name, and I turned to my buddy and I said, I'm going to marry that girl someday. It was kind of a joke, you know, I wasn't predicting the future, but here we are later, you know, um, 23 years of marriage, four kids, it's beautiful. You know, when you fall in love with someone, you know, there are some things that you do. You go to great lengths to be with them, don't you? You drive for hours just to be with them for a short amount of time. You walk 5,000 miles. I I think there's a song about something like that, walk 5,000 miles. You stay up late on the phone, stay up very late. Hours of meaningless conversations, right? You try to be the last one to say, I love you, and not hang up. You walk in the rain, and it's not annoying. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to walk in the rain holding hands. And then you spend a small fortune on a gift that you know they'll, they'll love. And when you're apart, it's painful, it's miserable, and you can't wait to see them again. Is it like that with your relationship with God? You'll do whatever it takes to carve out time in your day to be with him. You desire this love relationship with him and never want it to end. You're willing to sacrifice time and sleep and money to show God how much you love him. You're always thinking about him and the next time you'll be with him. The question posed to the believers at Ephesus is a penetrating question for all of us. Have I abandoned my first love? my love for God, my love for other people. You know, Jesus wants our heart more than anything we could ever offer him. You know, there's so many metaphors in the Bible that describe our relationship with Jesus. He's a king and we're a servant. He calls us a friend. We're a part of the family, but we're, we're called friends, children of God. He's a father, we're a child. There's a, a metaphor of, the metaphor of marriage. Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. Someday, we know that he's coming back for the bride. He's coming back for the church. We're the bride of Christ. And Jesus wants this love relationship with you that you can never experience with anyone else. He wants a honeymoon, a honeymoon with you that will never end. First Corinthians chapter seven, Paul is talking about the marriage relationship and the nature of marriage and and what it's about, and what it's meant to be, and, 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 and how you don't have authority over, over yourself and your body. It's, you become one flesh in every conceivable way. And the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 7, when you get married, you're no longer your own. You belong to someone else. You become one flesh. This is why Paul said, if you're single, you're free. There's no accountability. You can serve the Lord. But when you get married, everything changes. The metaphor is so beautiful for the relationship as as believers. Jesus is claiming ultimate authority and influence over your life. Jesus wants to be your first love. 
Have you abandoned the love that you had at first? I want you to think about when you got saved. I know for many of us, you know, when you get saved, man, God does a a radical work in your life spiritually. I mean, you have this this new passion, you're on fire for the Lord, you, you want to tell everyone about them. And then sometimes as believers, you can start drifting. That passion begins to kind of wane. That fire begins to kind of be quenched a little bit. And over time, the, the passion, the fire is not the same. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. Have we abandoned our first love? Has the, has the fire been quenched? Where's the passion that maybe you once had in your Christian walk? He wants to be your first love, but he also wants to be your last love. He says, remember where you have fallen. And then he says, repent. It's that military term. Stop, turn, go the opposite direction. If you have moved away from this passionate, fiery, vibrant, exciting relationship with Jesus, you can come back to Christ. If you've abandoned what what Christ did in your life years ago, you could come back to the Lord. If you've fallen, you could come back to your first love. He'll forgive you. He'll reignite that passion and that fire and and he'll give you that that passion again for him 2023 is the first day of the new year you know our focus should be on Jesus his greatness and his love for us and because he loves us so much and he died for us we should give everything back to him we should serve him this year greater than we've ever served him. We should love him more than we've ever loved him before. We should tell more people about Jesus than we've ever told people about the good news in our past. It's a new year. It's a new beginning. Let's not keep abandoning our first love. Let's come back to our first love. Let's come back to the one who loved us. The Bible, 1 John tells us, John, in another book said, we love God because he first loved us. So God's love should motivate, propel us, drive us to love him more and to love people that he's placed into our lives. Let's pray.